Welcome back. Glad you're here this evening for our Sunday night study. This morning we talked about the introduction that Genesis gives us, and although it wasn't really a textual study, it was designed to be a foundational study, if you will. I think that um, it's interesting in thinking about sermons and planning ahead through the year, and uh, I pray about it, think about it, talk to people, and line things out. It's always interesting to me how the Spirit works that all together. So, for example, um, the study on that you're engaging in on Bible class at 9 o'clock is on Genesis. And that wasn't planned, but Doug and I didn't sit down and hash this all out, but just an evidence to me that <clears throat> the Spirit leads us, God guides us, and shows us uh, the way we should go. And, of course, it's always based and centered around His Word, which is good. This morning, in consideration of the presence of God and the authority of God and the enemy's strategy, I thought it would be interesting to kind of take a little side road, which is typically what we will do on Sunday night. We're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 1. Great letter, uh, worthy of our full study at some point in this book of 16 chapters, uh, so much theology and practicality. But Romans 1, really this whole, you know, as Paul sets out, he's making the case for the gospel. And Romans chapter 1 is sort of the, uh, I would call it, the uh, prosecuting attorney's argument. And he writes about uh, why the gospel is necessary. So we're going to be in verses 18, um, and this will probably go into a two-Sunday study. So we'll... Start at verse 18 and see where we end up this evening. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God and for, uh, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So he starts out with a pretty unpopular subject. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. Now, in case you didn't know this, uh, the wrath of God is an unpopular subject in today's world. Uh, when people worldly or Christian, like to think of God. It's all about God's love. And we certainly understand that God is love. We're told that in Scripture, and it's described in many ways. But there's, you know, God's not a single-dimensional 
God. There's not just one attribute to him. And Paul opens up speaking about the wrath of God. Not popular in the world, and it's really not that popular in the church. People don't want to hear too much or think a lot about the wrath of God. But here, Paul opens with it. He starts with it. He leads with it, that the wrath of God, this is what's happening. Um, and he's, it notice that this is all in present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, when we talk about the wrath of God, of course, we're talking about, I know it's an unpopular subject, but the reason it's unpopular is because when we think of wrath, uh, we think of our own temper. Uh, we think of some hothead at work. Uh, we think of the, the, the father who, who's uh, unkind and cruel and uh, vicious toward his wife, hostile toward his children. We think of that kind of wrath. Um, <clears throat> that's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about God's perfect wrath. God's perfect wrath is different than you and I's anger and losing our temper. When, when God gets angry, it's for the right reasons. When God gets angry, it's righteous. Uh, there are times when it's right and good and pleasing to God to get angry. In fact, there are times I think you know, Christians don't get angry enough over over unrighteousness that we see. Some of that we can influence and some of that we can't. But uh, it's good sometimes to, if you're angry for the right reasons over the right things. God's always, whenever he exhibits his wrath, it's always right. And it's always for the right reasons. And his perfect righteous anger is directed toward godlessness and sin. Or as the text says, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. A couple of scriptures, if you're following along. Psalm chapter 7. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. One of the, <laughs> the challenges... None of us can speak from personal experience, but one of the challenges to always being right <laughs> is that there's going to be, a, be some way in which you see the ways in which your holiness is violated. Your rightness is ignored. And God's righteousness is uh, not only in his nature, but he experiences that indignation every day. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay? The wrath of God is perfect, and we are all due the wrath of God, quite plainly. Our sin make us worthy, whether it's one sin or multitudes of billions of sins, our sin is unrighteousness and worthy of the wrath of God. And it's not unrighteous, it's absolutely just, because that's outside of God's, it's, it's impossible for God to be unjust. So the good news of the gospel is that we were due wrath, we were due death, uh, the wages of sin is death, 
uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And verse 24 says, and are offered this hope of the gospel. So I really think we sell ourselves short if we don't fully understand the wrath of God or we don't think about it or talk about it. Because if you don't understand that your sin makes you a, a, a just recipient of the wrath of God, then you don't, you'll never take the next step to how to escape the wrath of God. Jonathan Edwards, infamously rather maybe, but famously, uh, preached the sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know, they, they, that was the spirit of uh, that, not of that age, but the, of the preaching of that day was to emphasize the hellfire and the brimstone. Sometimes some of you will come ask, are you getting, give them a little hellfire and brimstone today? It's interesting to me, uh, and I heard this said by a professor I had a deep respect for. He said, and he was an older gentleman, he said, he said, back in the day, we used to preach everyone into hell. He said, now we've kind of come at the other end of that spectrum and we preach everyone into heaven. He said, we need to land in our preaching somewhere in the middle of that and understand that judgment rests with Christ. But we need to be clear about what the Scripture says about the wrath of God and the justice of God, just as clear as we are on the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Without the Son, we're due His wrath. And Romans chapter 2, verse 5, which is just a chapter over from our key text tonight, Paul writes, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We, I'm, I'm certain that non-Christians don't understand this or they become Christians immediately. But judgment day is coming. And no one will stand in the judgment. The only person or people that will stand in judgment are those who know Jesus Christ. And those who are in, covered in his blood, whose sins have been atoned for, that's the only way to stand in the judgment is through Jesus Christ. And of course, that's the case that Paul's making. But to understand the gospel, you first got to understand the coming judgment. And then you have to understand that you have no hope of standing in the judgment. Uh, you'll hear people say flippantly, oh, only God can judge me. Yeah, that's right. But the, the other part of that is, you don't stand a chance without Jesus. So, we got to understand the wrath and the justice of God before we'll ever fully get to understanding the hope of the gospel and the mercy and the grace of God through that. As we think about his wrath, I think one thing that's true is that God's wrath is not only just... But it's fully expressed over time. It's, it, it's, it's revealed over time, I guess I'm trying to say. It, it seems to me, and, and I know there's unique cases, that the wrath of God tends to be more slow and gradual and a building up, uh, as is the case of the nation of Babylon, the nation of Rome, uh, rather than 
the times when it's instantaneous. This would be like a Sodom and Gomorrah example. You know, the, the wrath of God is rarely seen in a lightning bolt. You know, hear people joke around that and start to speak a little flippantly or irreverently and can't say, wait, oh, I don't want to sit close to you. Lightning bolts, God's going to get you. Well, uh, there, there's a, a few specific occasions in Scripture when that happens, but more prevalent is the, is the slow and gradual building up of God's wrath because God is also perfectly patient. He doesn't want anyone to come to perish. God does not delight in people perishing. He's not, uh, I can't remember if it was uh, the book cover or, or, uh, to Jonathan Edwards' sermon, but somewhere I've seen the image and it's kind of God looking over as, the, the soul, as, as men are cast into hell. And he's kind of got this gleeful uh, smile on his face. I, I don't think that's God's heart at all as revealed in Scripture. Um, God doesn't want anyone to perish. God is patient with you. Uh, but there's a point where his patience is going to run out. Uh, maybe a better picture of God's wrath is the, the water building up behind the dam. You know, uh, there's just this impressive amount of weight and power and, and destruction that's coming when the dam breaks. So it's not a flash of anger. It's not a... Uh, capricious kind of anger uh, from a slight momentary offense, uh, but it's a firm, solid, lasting hatred of all that is evil and all wickedness. And, and I mean all evil and wickedness. And it's easy for me to pick on certain things. It's easy for me to point out sins that I don't struggle with or commit. But when we talk about the wrath of God is perfect, it's against all. All sin. And so, the sins that we do struggle with, what we might consider small, or we might treat them in a light way, the wrath of God does not. It's perfect. Uh, And it's a hatred of all of it. Um, So, we see see this wrath is kind of slower rather than quicker, and it's generally more crock-pot-natured than microwave-natured. It's slow, and it takes a while to build up. But once it's built up, it's serious. And if we take a step back, and just outside of Scripture, think about history, uh, civilizations, you know, if you study the rise and fall of civilizations, it's kind of a fascinating study. We're used to our world where, you know, America's been on top for a couple of centuries, but that's really nothing in the, in the historical sense. We've got Rome and Babylon and uh, all sorts of kingdoms and empires, and many of them lasted longer than we have, but they all kind of go through this cycle, and there's different reasons that they fall and uh, all of that, but most of it... Kingdoms and nations fall, not because of external threat, but because of internal rot. You probably have heard of, if you're not, a guy named Gibbons wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Huge volume of works. And he goes through there and talks about 
what made the great Roman Empire, whose roads we still have today, uh, whose some of the technology we still use today, had an empire like that that reached spread across the world, that was undefeated and had no serious enemy, um, how's an empire like that fall? How's it fall to the ash heap of history? Well, he summed it up in large part due to the gradual loss of virtue among the citizens of, of the nation. It began to, to deviate from righteousness. And sin has consequences spiritually, but also in a lot of ways. And as this began to grow, the internal rot slowly began to eat away at the empire. So, is that God's wrath? Well, I think there's part of that there. I think God reveals his righteousness and his justice and his, I meant what I said, firmness. And even if nations think they're getting away with something by ignoring it for decades or centuries, uh, eventually your sin will find you out. And it will be always destructive in the results. So wrath typically doesn't come by plague or natural disaster or lightning bolts or, you know, kind of this instantaneous overthrowing. But often it's just, a, it's, we see God abandons the people to the consequences of their decision. This is not a political statement, so don't get mad. Um, no matter who's elected or what cycle we're in, presidential or, you know, the off years, um, the side that loses will say, you know, as we go along, see, see what happens, see what happens. Elections have consequences. Select leaders, you vote for them, you elect them, uh, you are getting the policies, you're getting the moral fabric uh, to which they are a part of. And you can't ignore the consequences that are going to come. Uh, and so it's really important to pay attention to not the party, not the person, but the policy that we're talking about. And you ask yourself, is this policy good? Is this policy right? Is this policy please God? Is this policy morally right? And you can do that with about any policy, I suppose. As you do that, know that if it's something God would stand for, then the consequences will be good. If it's a direct violation of God's clear instruction and moral code, there will be consequences there too. So that's a simple human illustration that only us in America really truly get, the ability to have some say into who our leaders are. And when we choose them, no matter who we choose, there will be consequences. So it's an important thing to think about. What are the consequences of this choice? All right, sin has consequences. 
It's, it's a really good thing to think through what are the consequences of this choice. So we need to think about that. Because the wrath of God is revealed often in the consequences. And the blessings of God are also revealed in the consequences. So, Paul starts by saying, the wrath of God is, is revealed. Here's how it's revealed. Verses 18 through 21. He says, first of all, uh, they suppress the truth about God, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He would lead us into all truth. God's word is truth. Okay? So we understand truth. So anytime you see God being suppressed, uh, Jesus being hated, uh, the spirit being ignored, the word uh, being suited, uh, molded to fit our own beliefs and desires, you're watching the suppression of truth. Suppressing God or God's word is suppressing Truth. Now that sounds weird to kind of say we're suppressing God. Obviously you can't suppress God, but you can suppress the truth of God or at least attempt to. You can ignore it. You can pretend it doesn't exist. You can refuse to acknowledge it. And this is what he says uh, they do. They refuse. Uh, Verse 19, "For for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. The first evidence is, just look around. Where did all this come from? How did this happen? There's there's design in everything. On top of this pulpit, which is made of wood, there's beautiful wood grain. You can take that wood grain, the tree from which it came, and you can see the rings in the tree and count how old the tree is and the wood from which this pulpit is made. Well, didn't that just happen? Because to me, that seems like a little bit like design. When you look at a leaf and how it's constructed, a flower, and how it opens, a cell, and how it functions, every part of it all has design written all over it. And they ignore that. A reasonable person says, well, if there's design here, who made that? Who's the designer? How'd that happen? Okay, somebody built this pulpit. You might go, well, that's interesting. I wonder how they did that. You can come up and ask me, who, who built that pulpit? How'd they do it? But you wouldn't say to me, or expect me to say to you, uh, that pulpit's always been there. Uh, it's never not been there. It just kind of appeared. There's a massive explosion some billions of years ago. It just came to be. Sounds kind of foolish to me. But the wrath of God is being revealed against those who suppress the truth about God because they refuse to acknowledge the plain evidence of God revealed in everywhere. The plain evidence of Creator completely evident in all of creation. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there's no God. 
fool, not because he's unintelligent. There's a lot of very educated fools. That doesn't have anything to do with your intelligence. It has to do with your disposition and your willingness, or not, to acknowledge God. When you read through Proverbs, wisdom is always connected with seeking God, seeking God's truth, and living according to his instruction. That's a wise person. I know people who weren't too high on the intellectual scale who are very wise. The fool is a person who ignores God, who ignores the evidence of God, and refuses to live his life according to God's ways and laws. I've known some very educated people who lived in such a way. And the scripture calls them fools. And it doesn't do that lightly. I'm not sure how you can see any part of creation, whether you're talking about cells or weather or animals, uh, mountains, oceans, planets, galaxies... A lady this week was telling me about the ducks outside her home. And she's watched these ducks for years. From the time they hatched out were little baby ducks. And how mama and daddy duck would take care of the nest. And when they hatched and then take care of each other and guard and protect those little ducklings. As they walked to the pond and as they swam out on the pond. And then as the, one of the little baby ducks got attacked by a... They, th- they think a snapping turtle and pulled under. Mama duck was just flapping her wings and causing a big squawk and doing everything she could to protect her little duckling. Those ducks went back and forth. Years come and go, and they still, the little duckling survived. How does she know? Because there's a full-grown duck now. <laughs> just has one leg. Uh, that's, but you see something like that and say, how does that, how, if you really sit down and think about it, who teaches the duck to swim? Who gives the duck the instinctive nature to protect their little ones? In, in almost every, I mean, who designed the, 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 the feathers to repel water? To me, that's... There's so much of that, it's just impossible for a reasonable-minded person to look at creation and not see a creator. But some people are intent, are doing that. They say, well, you're just worshiping some fairy god in this sky, the spaghetti monster. You know, they mock it. Okay, that's fine. I mean, you have to argue with me, but someday... You're going to face your creator, and you're going, to have to, you're going to have to answer to him. Christopher Hitchens, infamous atheist, very intellectual, very smart. Uh, he's no longer an atheist. Well, he's dead. That's, he's no longer an atheist. The moment he stepped into eternity... He figured out real quick that all of his intelligent reasons that there couldn't be an intelligent designer went right out the window. The wrath of God is being revealed against that. Uh, Because it's plain. It's not that they can't see it. That's one thing. I think God has some understanding for ignorance. 
But this is a matter of that they won't see it. They refuse to pay attention to the details and the evidence. So, the scripture says that is inexcusable. All nature, all creation testifies to the nature of God and to a creator who is intelligent, who is eternal, who is divine, and who is powerful. And if such a creator exists, we believe, of course, that he does, then the next question is, why did he create us and what does he want of us? Not to jump too far ahead, continuing on. He says something interesting. He says, uh, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they suppress the, the, the wrath of God's being revealed against all sin, unrighteousness. Uh, first, the works of sin, which is suppression of truth, the refusing to acknowledge, and the third one is simple ingratitude, refusing to be thankful. And this is kind of an interesting one. I think it probably could apply to a re- religious people just as well, but it certainly applies to the godless, the unrighteous, and the fool. And that is... I was trying to think about this. This is all anecdotal. But in my mind, all the sincere atheists I've known or watched or listened to seem real angry, seem quite bitter, or... Melancholy. And I think, again, this is no hard data on this one, but I think the reason for that is right back here in verse 21. Godless people, people without faith, people that do not believe in God, don't yield to God, I'm not sure they have a reason for gratitude. Follow my line of thinking here. If there's no God, there's really no purpose. If there's no purpose, that, that, that does something to the human spirit. If, if it does not matter at all, if you will just, when you're gone, you're gone, and you're gone forever, what's the purpose for living? What's the reason for living? God's people, when you realize you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, according to Ephesians, when you realize and you stop, you know, the song we sing, count your blessings, name them one by one. If you do that on big things or small things, if you do that on a daily basis, you, you really realize you can't ever finish that list. You can't begin to number the ways in which God has been good to you, in which God has blessed you and, and blessed your life. People of faith have every reason to be grateful. Because they've received the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the blessings from God, eternity with God, and on and on. I think that's right. But call me on it. If you've ever seen a 
an atheist or even an agnostic who seems joyful and grateful and happy to be alive. I think that only comes from faith. I think it's only a point when you realize there is a God and that he made you, just starting with that simple point, gives you value. But without, without that, I'm not sure there is any value. His famous Christian comedian, Tim Hawkins, you know, he does little songs and things. Our kids love watching him and stuff. But he said he was talking about doing this riff about there's an atheist church. And he said, I bet that's interesting. You know, what, what is an atheist church like? And so he starts doing all these songs, remake, remaking hymns that we know. And what do we, what do we sing to the kids? You know, no one loves little children, no one at all in the world. And it's just kind of mocking this hopelessness, this agnosticism, this purposelessness that you see when you remove the creator from the hearts of men. And so, obviously, this lesson you get every Thanksgiving is that if you're a person of faith, gratitude should be not just a small season wedged between Halloween and Christmas shopping. Thanksgiving is a way of living. It's an attitude. But, but one of the consequences of sin is that you become much less grateful for the blessings of God. And the farther away you get from him, the less grateful you are. Ephesians 5.20 instructs people of faith, Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All of those, I mean, I'll just pull out any number of verses on thankfulness and gratitude, but think, think about it. Without God, there is no gratitude, I don't think. Ultimately, I guess the highest person you can be thankful, express appreciation, is yourself. But that doesn't go very far either. All right. Well, let's see. You're giving me a look like it's time to wrap up. So let's go ahead and wrap up there. The wrath of God is being revealed. It's being revealed against those who suppress the truth, those who refuse to acknowledge God, and those who are ungrateful and unthankful. We'll continue next week and talk a little more about what a world looks like without God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you deeply for every spiritual blessings which you have given us, uh, many of which you've given to us far before we knew you or knew uh, you in relationship through your son, Christ Jesus. And even more have we known since we have come to know you through Christ. Because of him and through him, we have every spiritual blessing. And so we do thank you. And we thank you for the opportunity to be with the family today, uh, to build one another up, to encourage one another, to be reminded of the promises of your word, and to love one another. Father, I pray that today, in our worship, in our study, in our meditation, in our thoughtfulness, uh, that this will recharge us for the week that is to come, that it will prepare us to live as you have called us to live. I pray that we might not just know your word, but be living your word. Lord, none of us will do that perfectly, which is why we all need your mercy. 
Uh, Lord, we will not stand in the judgment. It's impossible for us to do so. We are not good enough by any measure to stand uh, under your perfect judgment, uh, to be shielded from your wrath. There's no way for us to stand against that. And Lord, that is why we so deeply need your son, Jesus. That's why we thank you mostly for the the hope that we have through him and for the, the way in which he not only lived a perfect life, but died to atone for our sins. We're thankful that we have received mercy and justification through him. And we pray that as we consider the blessings that we have received through him, that those might overflow from us to others this week. Thank you for all that you do, God. And thank you mostly for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.